the Geraldine Jameson interview, brought to you by Tinwald Mills St. John's. Hello and a warm welcome to this week's programme. My guest today needs precious little introduction from me. Tony Robinson is probably best known for his role as Baldrick in Blackadder and as the Sheriff of Nottingham in BBC's Maid Marian and Her Merry Men, which he both devised and wrote. With a keen interest in history and archaeology, currently he's president of the Young Archaeologists Club, Tony has presented the worst jobs in history and hosts the very popular Time Team series amongst a myriad of guest starring roles. Well, Tony, a very warm welcome indeed to the programme. Thank you very much. Uh, while you were saying about all the things that uh, I've done, I was thinking I don't think that people sneeze enough on radio. I'm, I'm so full of cold at the moment and I was wondering how I was going to prevent myself from sneezing, but I think I'll just come right out of the closet. Much more. Be, be natural at all costs. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I mean... Blackadder is still on Sky, isn't it? It is indeed, yeah. Yeah, as as is Time Team. I think we've we've just sort of uh, occupied the entire satellite spectrum at the moment. But the whole thing is, I mean, it's so it's so good to know that. um, So there's life after Baldrick, literally. Yeah, yeah, yes. I, I. I always get rather upset when I hear actors whinging that they've been typecast by only doing. Uh, you know, one role on telly. I, it seems to me that when you do that one role, it does open an enormous number of doors to you. And uh, if you can, then that's the time to exploit it. It's but, getting that break, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I was 38 when I did the first Black Adder, and I'd been... My first professional experience was uh, at the age of 13. So I know, that's the artful oh, dodger, that's right. the Oliver. When, when well, yes, I was originally one of the boys in the workhouse. It was only because the boy who was playing the artful dodger bunked off school one Tuesday afternoon, forgetting it was a matinee, that uh, I got my big break at 13. Because, believe it or not, they had no um, designated understudies. No one knew it would be the hit it was. I mean, if you think about that time, I don't know, what was about 1959, I suppose. Um, up until that time, the West End had been totally dominated by these really successful musicals, but they were all American. Oklahoma, Carousel, Paint Your Wagon, South Pacific. Fantastic. But suddenly there was this homegrown land and show uh, with all these little cute boys in. And and it just it just went boom. So yeah, n- uh, nobody had thought really as far as getting understudies. So do you think were you born under a lucky star, or you had a cunning plan from the outset? Um, I think the thing about uh, uh, cunning plans and lucky stars is, I think it was Anne Bancroft who said that she thought that the success in our industry was five percent talent and ninety five percent survival instincts, and I, I think that's right. It's all about hanging on. It's all about staying in there. And I think that if you if you have hung on for a long time, then when some kind of lucky break does happen, you're able to capitalise on it. Uh, I feel so sad, really, for, for younger kids who have their big break. They've clearly got a great deal of talent. What they haven't got is the emotional muscles, as it were, to hang on in there. And after six months or a year, they just... they. It's it's not through want of skill. It's just through through want of staying power. Actually, your early story is really quite interesting because you went to preparatory school and then you attended Wanstead County High Grammar School. I mean, you were born in, in East London and Hackney, and and after, but you did get several O levels, quite good ones. Four. Come on, you can't well, beat up minute. my academic history, career. History, geography, and two English. I mean, that's wow. pretty pretty good. But you decided that that really wasn't for you, and you were too young to go to to RADA, but you did get a place at the Central School of Speech and, and, and Drama. Mm-hmm. Now that was a bit of luck, really, wasn't it? For even that. 
Uh, it was luck in the sense that I didn't think I needed to go to drama school because by that time I thought I was God's gift to acting. We were precocious little monsters. But uh, I have to say in my own defence that I think at least part of that was due to the fact that we were pampered and cosseted in a way that really was not very helpful, I think, to the psyche of 13 or 14-year-olds. Uh, so I was stayed on at school. Uh, I just got my four O levels by cheating. Uh, I'd been away from school so much, there was no way I was going to be able to get four O-levels. And indeed, uh, when I was supposed to be at school, I never used to turn up anyway because nobody ever knew where I was supposed to be. Were your parents not supportive? Uh, they were support. They were certainly supportive of me being in show business. Oh, they were supportive of me developing academically as well. It's just that I, I'd got that sly guile of the teenager, and because uh, you were an only child, I was an only child. Yes, that's that's what it's all about. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I would avoid school whenever I could. And after I'd done my O levels. Uh, my teacher said to me, right, that's enough mucking about. You've got to knuckle down now. We're going to put you into the S-level group, which meant trying out for Oxford or Cambridge, which was just ludicrous. You know, four O-levels, and you can't even get those without having uh, your your vocabulary secreted away in a copy of a novel you just happened to take with you into the exam room. Um, so uh, I said, no, I don't want to do that. I want to go to drama school, darlings. As far as I was concerned, it was just an, it was an easy way out. It would just mean that people would stop pressuring me. And thank God that I did go to drama school because the first thing they said to me was, look, like everybody in your year is going to have a really hard time, but you're going to have the hardest time because you've got to get rid of all those misconceptions about acting and performance skills that you've developed over the last four or five years. Now, I really didn't want to hear that. I wanted to be told, God, you're so good, I don't know why you're bothering to come. Just have two and a half of these three years off. Uh, so in many ways it was very miserable, but uh, it, it transformed my ability to do the job. Well, tell me about the break then for this wonderful situation in comedy, Blackadder. I mean, Rowan Atkinson, I mean, you were the sort of personal scruffy servant, really. Mm. Stephen Fry was in that. Mm. Ben Elton was the script writer. Mm. All great people. Yes, I've I've said that it was like how I imagine being in the Brazilian national football team must be, that everyone around you is just so dazzlingly brilliant that it forces you to raise your game. And I think that's what happened to me. And I, that in in many ways was a lucky break. It was a lucky break in that I only got the part because it was a really awful part in a not very funny pilot. Uh, and loads of people turned the part of Baldrick down because it was eight lines, none of which were faintly humorous. And so eventually I was offered it. And this was at a time when... I was never offered anything without having to do countless auditions and interviews, but the script just came through the post. Result. Uh, so it was that, so outrageous, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. What, do you mean the script or that I got the job? No, 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 not that you got the job, but the script. I mean, as you say, it wasn't... It wasn't really that outrageous to start with. It was a desperate attempt to write a funny parody of those 1950s black-and-white television shows, which, of course, both of us are far too young to remember, but things like, you know, Ivanhoe and The Buccaneer and uh, Robin Hood. Uh, and we hadn't gone far enough down the parody road in the first series, and we didn't really know where the humour lay. So it was not it was not a great pilot by any means, and we were lucky to get the first series. And at the end of the first series, uh, the powers that be at the BBC said, right, that's it, no more series. And it was only two years later when Michael Grade came back to the BBC that our producer was able to persuade him that actually it was worth continued investment mm-hmm. in the show. So he uh, he said we could have the second series, but halved our budget. 
which forced us to go into studio rather than on film. And in a way, I think that probably focused our minds a bit and we created something that was a little more discreet and was actually more like the people that we all were. So there's this other half of you then that has written so much for children, haven't Mm. you, as well? Mm. I think the writing came about because although I'd always written a bit, I had no confidence in my writing. Having left school at 16, I always felt that uh, professional writing was something that you couldn't do unless you had a brain the size of Tasmania um, and had gone to posh schools. So I would never have dreamt of doing it on my own. But I, I developed a kind of credibility through being in Blackadder, which is absurd. You know, I pay the stupidest person in the world and suddenly everyone thinks I must have gone to Oxford or Cambridge. Uh, and so I started being offered uh, writing contracts uh, and it was only because I had been sitting down discussing the Blackadder scripts f- so much and, you know, we never did any rehearsal. All we were doing was sitting down trying to get the script right. That, that was the kind of people that they were. Um, and through those discussions, I think I learnt enough to begin to know how to write. And I think more than anything, what I learnt was that writing isn't about coming up with the answers when you're staring at a blank piece of paper. Writing is about framing the questions correctly. As soon as you've got the right question, the answer becomes apparent. So you don't have to think about the hard stuff you just think about the easy stuff what are the questions I want to ask of myself and really on, on the back of that I developed a, a whole new career as well as a children's television program you won no less than two Royal Television Society mm. awards and a BAFTA yeah. never mind an international pre jeunesse the fact I love this Scott style of interviewing this is great <laughs> keep talking tell them <laughs> I'm far too modest to say this stuff <laughs> but, but that was amazing that fat tulips garden really yeah. wasn't it well, the first series that I did was called Tales from Fat Tulips Garden, and that I did that for for Central Television, and that was about uh, this weird garden uh, that uh, it wasn't really a garden. It, it was it was all about the kids I used to play with in primary school, really. And that, uh, but it, but I'd turn them all into animals, and uh, uh, and it was a very fl- free flowing, really quite hip. It was probably the first very hip program that British Television had done for five year olds. Uh, and, and, you know, all the older kids used to watch it uh, as well. And, and by some strange quirk of fate, the location manager, when he went around looking for a location, found a location where I actually played as a child. And I had no idea. I just turned up on the first day and went, blimey, O'Reilly. I used to play in this garden. Amazing. And then and then on the strength of that, I felt so confident about the kind of storytelling that I was beginning to develop that I, I, I went right back to the, the master storyteller, Homer, and thought, all right, how would kids tell this story now? What's the right vocabulary? What's the right attitude? What's the right imagery for those programmes? Uh, and... Uh, so for a whole year, I was surrounded by various translations of the Iliad and the Odyssey and racking my brains with how we might recreate it and, uh, and wrote a 13-part series called Odysseus, the Greatest Hero of Them All. Have you always been fascinated with archaeology? Because when I think of Time Team, I mean, we believe now that Time Team lovers actually sort of shout at you, Can, you know, will you come and dig up our gardens and yeah, so on. Yes. It's, it's an extraordinary um, concept, really, it's one of those great television ideas, isn't it, archaeology in three days? As soon as you've said it, it's so bleeding obvious that you think, why hasn't anyone ever done it before? It's something to do with the fact that Geophys, 
uh, the, our ability to read what's underground. Although it's an old technology, it's basically what, we, what the subs were using and what the bouncing bombs were using in the Second World War. What changed was the microchip, and it meant that you could read underneath the ground and then wouldn't have to book a mainframe computer to chug away for 10 weeks before you could find out what the uh, answer was. But you could just get a printout immediately from the back of a van. So that meant that you know, Mortimer Wheeler's nine-month digs, most of it was spent looking around to see where the archaeology was was, suddenly we had a pretty damn good idea of where the archaeology was, so we could go straight onto it. And it has never been our intention to kind of lift a whole field and reveal every bit of archaeology. This is very much, it's like, it's like doing a keyhole operation. Our aim is to assess what is there, and from that assessment we can tell a big story, and then later on if other archaeologists want to come along and do a, a much more comprehensive dig, by that time we've hopefully recorded it so well and the information is so accurate that they would be able to do it in a tenth of the time they would otherwise uh, have taken. So that these new kinds of disciplines or this new kind of technology meant that we could actually make a television programme about archaeology in three days. But I think it's your energy in it that comes across. I mean, you're, you're there, you're, you're, you're shouting at the people in one moment, you know, and you, you're getting them to get on and do it. And the whole thing's got that sort of infectious speed about it. Otherwise, they might be awfully similar, I have to say. Yes, I have to say the broadsheets uh, almost unanimously condemn me as this, this over-loud, over-enthusiastic puppy scampering all over the, uh, the archaeological dig. But uh, I think that's very much about the storytelling. Um, for the reasons that you say, that archaeology is painstaking. Uh, it takes an enormous amount of time. Whole days, whole weeks, whole months go by, and all you've been doing is scraping at two different colours of earth, trying to decode whatever they might mean. Um, and I think we all felt that it required that shot of adrenaline uh, in order to make it televisual. And I guess that's one of the things that I provide. But for me... Time to, my job on Time Team I see very much as the job of a storyteller. Um, I go to a trench, I assess what's happening in the trench at that moment. I talk to the people who are working on that trench and try and get from them the spin on, on what's going on there right there and then. I then try and orchestrate it into, into a dialogue uh, and we then, as it were, improvise it and, and, and then do it five or six times because you have to do the reverse shots and the cutaways and the long shots, etc., etc. And then I immediately go onto another trench and assess that uh, in a similar way. Mm-hmm. So intellectually, it's, it, it, it's quite challenging and, and, you know, 12, 13 hours a day for those three days, it, it, it's getting your head around stuff. Uh, at the end of that time, there's all these long pieces of narrative, which is me and the guys in the trenches, which the editor then has to knit into some kind of coherent story. Well, you persuaded Channel 4 to do this documentary, Me and My Mm Mum. Totally different. You'd probably never attempted anything like that before, had you, Tony? Um, No. I wanted to do a piece about the elderly, and in particular the infirm elderly, because I'd been rapidly coming to the conclusion, having lived with dementia for the previous 13 or 14 years, because both my 
mum and my dad in one way or another had, uh, had your suffered. Your dad had Alzheimer's and yeah. your mum dementia. Yeah, well, you know, we use these terms so vaguely. I think one of the interesting things is that very few of us actually know what our loved ones are precisely suffering from. Because whereas if they were kids, you'd have every specialist in the world pouring over them, looking in their ears and noses and uh, telling you what it was that they'd got. Uh, when it's an old person, all anyone's concerned about is the symptoms. How do we mop up the wee? Where do we put the catheter, etc., etc. So we use these terms in a way that none of us really understand very well. And that was one of the things that I wanted to point out, that as far as I was concerned, in a 100 years' time, people would look back on how we treat the elderly now with the same kind of disbelief that we look back on child labour. But didn't so, you also insist, though, that you would they would use your mum, otherwise you wouldn't do it. I did, absolutely, because I felt that if we were doing something about dementia, then the voice of the of people with this illness had to be heard. And although my mum, bless her, couldn't stick more than two words together because she kept forgetting what she was thinking and she couldn't think through to the end of a, a sentence, her eyes were so alive and there was so much humour and dignity about her that I felt that that would speak volumes. And I think I was absolutely right in that. And I, one of the things that I'm proudest at about the, uh, the programme is, is the way that it shows my mum. Except that on the very last day of filming, and whoever would have predicted this, my mum died. Uh, so it's become very much uh, an, an elegy to my mum, as well as hopefully making people engage in uh, some of the more uh, important issues around, around the elderly. And I think they have, you know, because <clears throat> I came here today from, uh, from Luton and uh, I was stopped by so many people who wanted to talk about the programme and talk about issues to do with the elderly. At one point, just coming out of Smith's, three different people stopped me at the same time. And so the four of us suddenly, who'd never met before, were in conversation about issues to do with the elderly. And of course it's very topical right at the moment. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, there are a number of reports have come out recently saying how badly the elderly in general, in particular, particularly those with, uh, with dementia, are, are being treated. So it's... Uh... I thought it was lovely where I read that um, you went along to your mum's care home when the suggestion came up in the first place to do this. And there she was, frail, in her wheelchair as usual, looking as puzzled as usual about everything. And then you started saying, well, I'm going, I was thinking you and I could do this, Mum, and so on. Make this programme. Make yeah. this programme. And suddenly her face broke into the broadest of smiles because she was actually was quite keen on amateur dramatics. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Yes, she went, she went, oh, yes. And then, of course, she forgot all about it because she, you know, she couldn't hold a thought. And then about a quarter of an hour later, there's a rather sort of, impish look of puzzlement came over her face and she said so what about that thing and I said what thing and this little frown appeared she said the nice thing <laughs> <laughs> so I knew I knew it was okay to uh, to make a program about her and uh, I kind of do hope there's a heaven because uh, then it'll give her a chance to see it yeah well the nice thing also is of course I mean you're an only child as I said at the early in the programme, and, and the thing is that that makes it doubly difficult because there's no one to share the burden That's, of your ageing parents. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to whinge about my particular situation. I think the interesting thing for me about making the documentary was this wasn't some special thing that a special person who's on telly does. I was All I was doing was voicing the experience of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of, of people throughout the, uh, the British Isles today. 
Whatever was the question you asked me, I can't even remember what you asked. Well, I, I didn't actually ask the question. I just said how nice it was actually that and, and the difficulty that oh, and you did single say about being children, single children. Yeah. So yeah, it is. I found it very hard being a single child because um, it meant that. I had to take the responsibility for what happened to her every time. And although, yeah, my kids would be great about it and my partner was great about it, it it's you kind of feel it's different when it's blood. I didn't feel that... All I felt they could do was reinforce my decision. And if I'd had a sister or a brother or an uncle or aunt, uh, we could have made the decision together. So there was, a, there was a loneliness about that, certainly. You involved your son, her grandson. Um, that was a nice shot in the film there. He was terrific with her, I thought. Yes, but she Is was... he going to be an actor? Uh, no, no, he's not. But uh, what was funny about... Uh, uh, about their relationship is that she flirted with him outrageously. Her grandson, uh, we had. She uh, recognised obviously a good-looking chap. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yes, I think I think she had no idea who he was half the time, mm-hmm. other than that she knew that he was hers, uh, and and uh, it was great because you know whenever I used to go and visit on my own. Uh, it's it's hard work being with a person with dementia for a long time. But when uh, Luke came as well, suddenly I wasn't the focus of attention. Suddenly he was, and that was a was a great liberation. And you know, I know all kids uh, don't go and see their grandparents as much as they should. It's probably true of parents as well. But uh, I do feel that. Uh, when those issues can be shared a bit, it doesn't half help everybody. And you said also in the article, it's time to stand up really and fight for our elderly. Because, of course, I mean, they fought for our existence here. I mean, we might have been overrun by Hitler. Oh, that's the absolute irony. Our politicians always use that generation as the epitome of, you know, the fine generation with those great... Uh, values of self-sacrifice and service. Yeah, well, what have you given them in return? You nick their houses if they uh, uh, if they have to go into care homes. You uh, you pay their carers forty five quid a week. So not only does somebody who has got some terrible illness and, and and is elderly have to suffer, but if there's anyone else who loves them enough to sacrifice their lives to look after them, you put them in penury as well. Great. Thank you for saving us from Hitler. Here's your your reward. Here's <laughs> your medal. You've already been um, on Question Time, the David Dilby Question Time, um, as a member of the Labour Party. Mm. I think they'll invite you back because it's such a popular topic at the moment. Well, they may well do. I mean, they've, I've, I've done uh, Question Time a number of times, actually, and uh, uh, I've, always found that, I've always found that very interesting. The problem is politicians daren't talk like people because they know that if they say something that is slightly offline, then suddenly that becomes a story. So although in many ways I'm very irritated with our professional politicians, I also realise these dreadful constraints that they're under. And I do hope that in the not-too-distant future, our culture changes so that we can have genuine discussions with, uh, with politicians. I mean, I don't watch question time anymore just because they sound like robots when they speak and it's only because they're protecting their asses quite frankly <laughs> are you a member of the uk labor party's national mm. executive committee still a no no i i i resigned a couple of years ago and i have to say that do you know all this business about uh, um, you know money for peerages and all that it was it was very much about the fact that i felt that uh, information was being kept from the nec and i felt very frustrated because the nec like the executive committee of any organization was the uh, the organization that was supposed to make it work and we were constantly prevented from making it work because we didn't have the information that was available to us and g- given that i had so much work on i thought this is a travesty why am i devoting so much of my time 
to an organisation which actually doesn't have the power it's supposed to. So I quit. And talking of work, what have you got lined up in the future? I mean, you're on this massive tour at the moment, aren't yeah. you? I mean, let me just, uh, just, just, because you asked me this question, let me just go on to say, uh, of course, because of the kind of person I am and the, the, the kind of cares that I have, I, I'm still a member of the Labour Party and I still care passionately in its values. It's just that I think that uh, the time has come to, to rein the politicians in a bit. So I'll, I'll be making, in answer to your second question, uh, I'll, I'll, I will be making a number of documentaries, hopefully, which will be as challenging as, as me and my mum about other subjects. And Channel 4 have already asked me to do that. Uh, I've make, I'm making three documentaries about various myths that are still around in the 21st century. One was about the Da Vinci Code, and I've already done that. The second, which is already in the can but isn't out yet, is about the Book of Revelation. And this, I think this is a really interesting story. The fact that there are a number of, of right-wing evangelicals in the States who believe in a lit literal interpretation of the book of Revelation. In other words, they think that Jesus won't come again until the Middle East is in turmoil. So they are opposed to the idea of any kind of peace settlement in the Middle East, which would make them sound like a bunch of old twits and crackpots, except that uh, many of them are senior figures in the Republican Party, and the contention is that Bush's policy towards the Middle East is actually influenced by these very weird ideas. So that's the second one. And the third one, which I'm not allowed to talk about, I'm, <laughs> I'm actually going to start filming in a couple of weeks' time. Wonderful for us to have you here on the Isle of Man, even just briefly. Tony Robinson, thank you very much indeed for being a super guest this week on the Geraldine Jameson interview. Thanks for having me. shop Tim Wald Mills. Now open Sundays 2 till 5pm. Take a fresh look at Tim Wald Mills, St John's.